Okay, we're going to start here on Memtera Manalaf by the Mishnah. Mishnah says, Tomnim biksut ubeperot bikanfeyona ubisorechel nucharashim binorechel pishtan. Question of whether Daka belongs in the Girsa, which is that you're allowed to do Vartman, or you're allowed to use these materials in order to surround or insulate the pot. That is, ksut, which we had mentioned yesterday, right? Uh, clothing, perot, fruits, kanfeyona, feathers of the yona, misoret shel harashim is sawdust. Uneoret shopishtan, as Rashi describes, neoret shopishkan is dak dak. Shino arimina pishtan. It's the very small pieces that come out of the flax. So that's why the reef and the rosh don't have the word daka in there because the definition of neoret already is that it's very dak dak. It's already thin. Very beautiful. He says if it's so thin, if it's so small, then it's problematic. But if it's gasav, it's thicker, pieces are bigger, then it's permissible. So, Amar Biyanai, Tfilin Tzvichim Gufnaki. Tfilin require one to have a clean body. Elisha Baal Kinefayim. Similar to that of Elisha, the man of the wings. Mahi. Bayamar Bahem. What is this Gufnaki they require of you? Abayi says that do not pass gas. Rav Amar Shloishan Ben. That do not sleep with them. Now, Elisha Baal so first of all, we're going to have a story here about Elisha Bal Knafayim, happened to be a big tzaddik, but there's no clarification of here what the connection between that is and the question that the Gemara is saying or posing, which is Kufnaki. So the Rishonim already raised that issue and say, what does it have to do with the fact that he's a tzaddik and that this Kufnaki? Like you'd see Tosvot ask it already. Uh, since we know that he had a miracle, which we're going to read about in a second, with the tefillin, he has Zahir Ben. He was representative of something like this. Others, like the Ramban, say that the Gemara makes a statement of tefillin, tzrichim, gufnaki, galisha, balknafayim, and the assumption you would make is that you have to be a tzaddik, like galisha, balknafayim, in order to wear them. Bayin Rovo come to clarify, what does it mean, like galisha, balknafayim, not that you're his level of tzidkut, but that you're his level of zihirut. Not that you're on his level of righteousness, but rather on his carefulness with regards to his interaction with the tefillin, which is, number one, that you can't pass gas to them according to Abayi, and Rabbah says that you cannot sleep in them. Now, Abayah would agree, agrees to that point. Abayah agrees that you can't sleep in tefillin. Abayah just doesn't worry about you sleeping in your tefillin. He's not suspect of someone falling asleep with their tefillin on. But you may not sleep with your tefillin on. What's the problem if you do fall asleep with your tefillin on? So Rashi says over here that the problem of someone who falls asleep is shemayafiyah. You might result in passing gas while you're asleep because you no longer have the control. Oh, you're at carry. As he says that he might have a seminal omission. Tosafot rejects that and he says that it shouldn't be an issue at all because the Gemara in other places says that a balkari is mutar bitfilin. The only time that you're restricted in wearing tefillin is if he's together with his wife. Then it's problematic. But carry by itself is not an issue. And therefore Tosafot says that the problem is or Shema Yafiach Baham, or Hesachadat, which that tefillin require active dat. We know that from the Kemar Menachot. Kemar Menachot, and we saw this in Brachot as well, has a Kalbachomer Mitzitz. The tzitz that only has one Shema Shem on it requires that the Kohen Gadol have Tamid, have his mind on it all the time. And certainly tefillin that have many Azkarot, that have numerous mentions of Hashem's name, require one to have dat ala tefillin. The Rishonim, in describing her and discussing this, 
tell us that over here the requirement is not necessarily to have positive kavanah, to actively always have kavanah, but rather it's the lack of negative kavanah. The one may not, as we say here, mesiach dato, not have his mind wander off to other things that would be inappropriate for wearing tefillin. Tefillin should have a consciousness with the individual that he maintains while he's wearing the tefillin. But not necessarily that every second he's actively thinking about his tefillin. So that will be lost, of course, if one falls asleep. You can't be conscious of the tefillin when one is asleep. Now, most of the poskim believe here that whether it's shinat arai or shinat keva, that means whether it's a full sleep or just dozing off, both of those are problematic. The Ran does mention the possibility that dozing off or shinat arai might be okay, we're just not experts at what's the threshold between a little snooze and a real nap. And therefore, we in general avoid it completely in terms of falling asleep in the tefillin. So then the Gemara asks, this is why this sugi is brought over here, is my carly balkna fine. What was it called? The man of the wings. Shpamachat zera malchut romi arishaag zera al Yisrael. They imposed a decree on Israel, anyone who puts on tefillin will have his head punctured, meaning the Romans believed it to be midah, keneged midah, you wore tefillin on your head, then you would have your head punctured. And Elisha placed them without regard to the gzerah. And he went out into the marketplace. Then one of the ministers saw him or got wind of it. Ratzmi Panav, Elisha takes off, Ratzacharav, and he chases after him. Came and she gets low, Kazdor overcame Elisha. So now low Mirosho, he grabbed him off his head, his tefillin, Elisha grabbed his tefillin off his, uh, his tefillin off his head, Bachzan Biado, and held him in his hand. Malo, Mazabiadecha. The Kazdor says to Elisha, what's in your hand? Amalo, Kanfei Yonah. The wings of the Yonah. Pashat Yado, opened up his hand, Vidimsa, Kanfei Yonah. And they found it, that they were the wings of a Yonah in his hand. That's why he's known as Elisha, the man of the wings. Tells what I think argues over here that it wasn't a surprise to him that it was Balkanafayim. I mean, Elisha saw that they were wings of a Yonah over here. It's not that he's guessing that there's going to be wings of a Yonah there. And he's telling him, but he knew that he had wings of a Yonah, or he saw that, and then he told him that. And the Gemara poses the question, which is, Umaishna. Why Kanfeyona? Of all wings or of all things that it could have turned into, why Kanfeyona? Misharofot versus any other bird. Shum the Amtil Knesset Israel le Yona. Because Bene Israel are compared to the Yona. Shinemar, Kanfeyona nechepek bekesip. That the wings of the Yona are covered with silver. Ma Yona, Knafeha Maginot Alea. Just like by the Yonah, its wings protect it. Av Yisrael, mitzvot, maginot alem. So too, B'nai Yisrael, their mitzvot protect them. Rashi says over here, or describes, Kanafeha maginot alem, minhat sinal, umikolof. Uses its wings to protect itself from the cold, and from any other bird, any other attacking bird. Vadam haba'aleha. And if a person tries to approach or attack the Yonah, he nilchemet, Umaka Barosh Gafa fights with the edge of its wing. The other birds use their claws to fight or protect themselves. The Yona uses its wing as its weapon, as its choice for fighting back. And therefore, 
the wings of the Onah are significant to the Onah in terms of its protection. And B'nai Israel are Nimshlu the Onah, just like the Onah protects itself with its wings. The Onah is B'nai Israel. The wings are the mitzvot. And the mitzvot provide that protection for B'nai Israel. Tosafot over here mentions there was a big difficulty in his time. And this is common amongst the Rishonim with regards to two mitzvot that we take for granted today. One of them was the mitzvah of Tzitzit, Talit, and the mitzvah of Tfilin. That those, both of those mitzvot were extremely weak in their time. Tosafot speaks about it in other places in terms of burying people, where they used to, they put a talit on the mate. And over there he expresses one of the logic issues is that these are people who did not wear a talit or tzitzit during their lifetime. And all of a sudden we're going to put it on when they die. The Ibn Ezra in the Torah also mentions that there was a huge weakness with regards to the mitzvah of tzitzit or talit. It says that at minimum people should have them on or have something on during davening. And the same with regards to tefillin. One of the issues with tefillin, of course, is this issue of gufnaki. Is that people felt that they could not maintain a gufnaki, and therefore made it impossible, or the hesachadat made it impossible to wear tefillin. Remember, the practice originally was to wear tefillin all day. So the transition to what we have today takes some time. Today we only wear tefillin during the period of davening. We assume that one can keep it a gufnaki, one can maintain that it doesn't have a hesachadat. It's a discrete amount of time where a person puts on tefillin. But that transition takes time, and Tosafot is actually mentioning it here. People have a mindset that tefillin are worn all day, and they're unable to maintain the kedushar or whatever is necessary, to wear them all day. So then the transition, say, you don't, you can do the mitzvah of tefillin by simply putting them on. But because of that, there is some sort of weakness in the mitzvah of tefillin, of course, I would also add in the cost of making tefillin in their time is extreme. It's very, very expensive and very difficult. But because of that, Tosfot here mentions the For this reason that the Gemara mentions, we're not patur. These couple of things, we can have that. They're speaking in their time. This mitzvah is weak in our hands. People are not performing the mitzvah of tefillin. It's not a new phenomenon. The mitzvah was already problematic at the time of the Chachamim, that the Gemara says later on in Perek Rabbi Lezer de Milo, because any mitzvah which B'nai Yisrael were not most their nefesh for during the Shatak Zerah, Examples of mitzvot, there the Gemara gives examples of mitzvot that they were Moser Nefesh for, and mitzvot that they were not Moser Nefesh for. The one that they were not Moser Nefesh for was tefillin, which already indicates in the time of Chazal already, it's considered to be problematic. It's a weakness in that mitzvah. And Achad Kavakam, by the time of the Baliyat Tosfot, it's definitely a weakness in the mitzvah. The Tosfot raises an issue from the Gemara in Yoma. The Gemara in Yoma says, Who are the Poshei Yisrael? Who are the sinners of Israel? Karkafta, Dolomarach Tfilin. A skull, a head that has not put on Tfilin. Someone who does not put on Tfilin is considered to be amongst the sinners of Kalal Israel. Now, Tosfut is faced with a problem. Gemara seems to say that those people are on the extreme in terms of sinners. And now we have the majority of the people not putting on Tfilin. We're going to call the majority of the people Poshe Israel. So Tosfut goes and rereads that Gemara to say Poshe Israel does not mean just someone who doesn't put on tefillin, it's someone who doesn't put on tefillin be on merit. Someone who is doing it in spite, right? The hafis, that he does it, merit, pesha, and that's why it's called Poshe Yisrael. So Tosfot redefines that in the Gemara Yomah in order not to be a problem or a stira to the 
reality on the ground, which is that many people were not putting on tefillin, and the category that Chazal assigned to them of Poshe Yisrael. So therefore he says, Poshe Yisrael is only when the Mered, whereas today what we have is ignorance, or people are just not asuk in this mitzvah. But those who says that it's not so difficult, it only requires gufnaki, not falling asleep, we are capable of that. And then again, the limitation like we have today to put on tefillin during davening makes it much easier and palatable for most people to put on tefillin, which they wouldn't be able to do if they had to wear tefillin all day long. The question, and it's a very difficult question, Tosafot already raised it, all the Rishonim raised it, is what was Elisha doing? Elisha about confined, we have two issues with what he did. The first issue is that he wore the tefillin. Why is he allowed to wear the tefillin if they say that it's sakanat fashot? He's going to lose his life. This is not one of the three cardinal sins that one is obligated to give up their life for. And therefore it should have been, he should have violated the mitzvah and not given up his life for it. So why is he wearing tefillin bizman gzirat hashmad? That's number one. The second one is, I don't know, that could be the answer. All right. Number one, two is, if he felt that he had to wear the tefillin, then what right did he have to take them off? Once he caught up with them, what right did he have to take the tefillin off? So if you can find the reason why he was wearing the tefillin during that time period, then what granted him the right to take them off? So Tosafot already starts with some answer. He says, Even though in Sanhedrin it says, David mentioned this when I was describing the problem, that it says, When it comes to time when the Jews are being persecuted, then we don't have the limitation of the three cardinal sins. We have anything that is defined as a Jewish action, then you may not violate it. Even to change shoelaces. If the Jews have a particular minag, for whatever reason, that has to be upheld. Tosavod claims that the problem is that if you give up these items, then you're acting like a non-Jew. If this is something particular to Jews, then not doing it makes you like a non-Jew. But Domesh and Motsiyad Smomi Klal Yisrael. Looks like he's taking himself out of Klal Yisrael. What's the big deal here? He took the tefillin off. He doesn't have tefillin on for a second. Plenty of Bnei Yisrael walking around without tefillin on. So he's taking off the tefillin. It's not an issue. So the Tosafot only addresses the one issue, which is why did he take the tefillin off? It's Gzera the Shmad. That's what assumes if it's Gzera Shmad, then he does have to wear them. So what gave him the right to take them off? He answers that he had the right to take them off because Zerda Shemad or the issues of Zerda Shemad are only when you look like you're taking yourself out of Klal Yisrael. You're not acting like a Jew anymore. Over here, taking off tefillin doesn't necessarily equate to not being a Jew or acting like a Jew because many people aren't wearing tefillin. He's not the only one not wearing tefillin. It's not an issue for him to take off the tefillin. That's Tosafot's answer. Correct. It might say why he wasn't obligated to put them on, but Tosafot just assumes that he has to put them on because of Zerat Hashmad, and therefore he put them on. He doesn't really address the first half of the issue. Other Rishonim raised the issue. The Ramban and the Ran take it on head on and ask, what's the, how could he have done this? How could he have done this at all? And secondarily, why was he permitted to take it off? Because it's Zerat Hashmad. So in terms of Zerat Hashmad, the Ramban answers... The Gzerat Hashmad do not have impact on mitzvot asay, on positive commandments. When it comes to Gzerat Hashmad or any Gzerat or anything that one is obligated to give up their life for, it's always with the mitzvot lot asay. It's only with regards to violating negative commandments. To do a mitzvah, to do something with a mitzvot asay, 
there there is no obligation in terms of giving up one's life. No, mitzvah to say does not require one to give up their life. So that's actually how he answers the first question, which is, why was he not obligated to give up his life? But then you're faced with the second question, if that's true, and that's why he was able to take off his tefillin, why did he put him on in the first place? So they either said he did it in private, or he assumed that he wasn't going to get caught. That's one answer. Right. He ended up in the shul, but he thought that it wasn't right, that he wasn't going to get caught. The other answer, which is the more probable answer, is that one, according to the Ramban, may make the choice to give up their life in the face of a mitzvah that they're not obligated to give up their life in. Ramban says that even though here there's no obligation to give up one's life, nevertheless, they're entitled to make that decision and to give up their life if they choose to do so when it comes to a mitzvah to say. So, He's allowed to do this. He's not held accountable for giving up his life. Even though the ruling here is that one may may not give up their life. Despite that, a person can make a decision to give up their life, especially to give up their life in order to keep a mitzvah of Hashem. Then Muka Yosef, others formulated as if it's a If it's necessary for the moment, if they see that there's a weakness in a mitzvah, then someone who's of stature who thinks that by giving up their life for the mitzvah, it will imprint on the people that it's important. How important it is to keep the mitzvah? Cause a wholesale change in people's awareness of mitzvah and their attitude towards mitzvah. Then the person's allowed to give up their life. That's how the Muka Yosef defines it. Others like the Ramban and the Ran and the, the Meiri and the Magena vote, all of them say that a person has that choice. There's a personal choice to decide in situations where there's no demand for you to give up your life, that you can make a decision to be Mikadeh Shem Shemayim anyway, or despite the fact that you're not obligated. They all act and are coming to dispel from what the Rambam says. The Rambam, when he formulates it, says, Kol Mish Nemar Bo Yavor Val any mitzvah that says that you must violate the mitzvah and not give up your life, v'ne'arag, and he decides to give up his life, v'lo avar, instead of violating the mitzvah, he's a mitchayev b'nashol. That person is chayav mita, basically. He is now held accountable for giving up his life inappropriately. He acted inappropriately according to the Rambam. Whereas others, as you know, feel otherwise, like the Ramban, like the Me'iri, like the Ran, feel otherwise the Mukha Yosef, in a more limited case, argue on the Rambam, and many of them, you can see here, the Lecha Mishnah quotes right away, Vim Tomar, They ask from our case, what is the Rambam going to do to explain what happened with Elisha Balkanafayim? He's clearly not obligated to give up his life, and he gave it up anyway. So, says that the Rambam might believe that even when it comes to a mitzvah to say, during Zeret Hashmad, you are obligated to give up your life. Unlike what the Ramban and the Ran argue, that mitzvah does say you're not obligated to give up your life for. Number one, they say because it's a positive commandment. Number two is because they say they could take that away from you anyway. They could incarcerate you and you wouldn't be able to do the mitzvah anyway. So the fact that they can actively remove your ability to do the mitzvah already makes you patur from giving your leg to do the mitzvah. Because even if you go ahead and try to do it, they could stop you by just incarcerating you. With negative commandments, they can't force you to violate the negative commandment because it requires an activity. But over here, by positive commandments, it's a shei baltase. It's simply being passive. And they can force you to be passive. 
by incarcerating you. So because of that, they believe you don't have an obligation. What the Lechem Mishnah says is that the Rambam is going to have to disagree with that and say that, no, you are obligated to give up your life during Zerat Hashmad, give up your life even for a positive commandment. That's why Elisha Balkanafayim gave up his life over here. Otherwise, the Rambam is in a bind. Because if you're not obligated and you do give it up, Mitchayev bin Afshol. So that's how the Rambam is going to have to explain these issues. Other question they bring is from Daniel. Navi, Daniel, Davins, which is only a mitzvah der Rabbanan, and again, gets himself into trouble or into danger. There, only a mitzvah der Rabbanan. How is he permitted? Could have been some that answered because he was in his room, in his house, he didn't expect anybody to see him, happened to notice him through the window, whatever it was that, they, how they caught him. But you're going to have to come up with alternative explanations for Daniel, for the Rambam, who says that he's not allowed to give up his life. The others can argue that he willingly did it. This comes up in a tshuva, it's a tshuva, tshuva called tshuva, Shut Mima'amakim. Shut Mima'amakim is a recording of tshuvot that were written during the Holocaust. They were written in the Kovna Ghetto. Vashri, who was the posseik at the time in the Kovna Ghetto, wrote them, buried them, survived the war. He only died recently. In 2003, he passed away. He buried them, and then he took them out afterwards and published them. Well, eventually, eventually got to New York. He published his memoir, these chuvot that he had. In one of these chuvot, he describes the question, takes up most of the chuva. The question describes the circumstance in which he was in. He was given control of the bathhouse. That was his job. He was given control over the bathhouse. That was in the ghetto. And he made a decision, closed the bathhouse on Shabbat and Yom Tov. He wasn't allowing it to be opened on those days. So there were others, the heads of the ghetto, that tried to get him out of the position. They said, this is beneath your dignity, you shouldn't be involved in this work. And he talks about over here how he feels like he's doing the work of Hashem because the relief that is brought to those that are allowed to go to the bathhouse. If you got permission to go to the bathhouse, you didn't have to go to work that day. And therefore they were spared working those that were sick or weak. And plus, bathing and washing the clothing was something that gave them some relief. They only had one pair of clothing. They barely had anything to bathe with. So he felt like he was doing a service to the people. He felt that he was mamish, doing gotzolat nefashot, and running the bathhouse, and he refused to give up the position. One day, one of the Germans came in, found the bathhouse closed on Shabbat, and wanted to know why. What was going on here? Why was it closed on Shabbat? Then his Talmidim come to him afterwards and said, and this is how the question comes about, how are you able to risk your life to keep the bathhouse closed on Shabbat? It's not one of the three cardinal sins. How is it for Shabbat... And Yom Tov, you are willing to risk your life to keep it closed. So he writes the tshuva here, and writes that even though there's no obligation to give up one's life for mitzvot to say Shabbat and Yom Tov, he says, nevertheless, I subscribe to all of those vishonim that believe that one has the right to give up their life, if they so choose. And we're clearly in Gzerat Hashmat, definitely in a period of time where the decrees against keeping mitzvot, it's definitely a time, he says, when there's weakness in mitzvot. People aren't keeping the mitzvot. I mean, not that they had a choice necessarily, but they're not keeping the mitzvot. And he felt that for a mitzvah like Shabbat, which is a fundamental of the faith, that he was willing to risk his life to ensure that the bathhouse was closed on Shabbat and Yom Tov. He quotes our Gemara of Elisha Baal Kinafayim, quotes the Bishonim that we mentioned before. His tshuva is basically premised on what we just discussed about this issue. It's, a, it's an amazing tshuva. I mean, he's writing it in the ghetto, in the Kovna ghetto. He's writing for the circumstances in which he's under and the decision that he makes to keep it closed. Can you imagine the Kovna ghetto to keep this closed in Shabbat and Yom Tov, despite the fact that if the Germans find out, that would be the end of his life. I mean, he speaks here in the case that he, the people who worked in the crematoria who used to escape, they tried to escape from the crematoria because the work was so horrible, and they knew in the end the Germans were going to kill them anyway because they didn't want any evidence left. 
So they did whatever they could do to get out of there. And when they escaped from there, they couldn't get the stench of death out of their skin and their, and their clothing. And so they always came to him first. They came to him first to clean their begadim and to go to the bathhouse to get the stench out of them. And then afterwards they used to try to run away or escape into the forest. But he describes that their first stop after they ran away or they escaped from the area where they had to work was to him in order to bathe. You see the unbelievable duress that they're under and the real conditions. I mean, this is someone who is a live witness talking about the conditions and the issues that they face in, in the ghetto. It's not a tshuva, but where someone asked them if they were allowed to risk their lives, to have tefillah b'tzibur. And again, over there, he paskins, he says, you may, but you can't tell anybody else about this psaq. Because he says, you may not uh, tell people. People can't feel an obligation to give up their lives to do these mitzvot. So they can't know about the psaq, that it's okay, because then people will feel an obligation to do it, which is not true. But if you so choose to make that decision, then it's allowed. It's a personal decision that you're allowed to make. What we don't want is people to feel an obligation, which isn't true in these circumstances. And at the end of the Mishnah says that not by Daka, but yes, by Gasa, what is he modifying? What is he qualifying in the Mishnah? There were two statements made at the end, which talk about thin material. One is the sawdust, and the other one is the leftovers of the residual of the flax. So which one is he making his comment about? The Norid of Pishtan, that is Daka, is like Zevel. Zevel in our Mishnah is something that is Mosif Hevel. So that's problematic. It's clear that he's addressing Norid Shel Pishtan. Over here it does say Norid Pishtan, modified by the word Daka, even though Norid Shel Pishtan is Daka. But it's clear that it's as opposed to the Mishnah where he says Gasa is allowed, and it's addressing the Oret Shel Pishtan. Okay, next Mishnah. Tomni Bishlachin, one may use Ratmana skins. Umil Taltalin Otan. And they are not considered to be Muksa. They can carry them, even though you're not using them for Ratmana. Begizet Zemer, one can use balls of wool. But you may not carry them. And they are Muksa. We saw this before already with the cotton by the Mukin, that their true designation is for using to make clothing is for Dabar, either Machtoli Isur, or Mahmat Chisarun Kis, which is that these have a specific designation for sewing, weaving with them, and therefore, on Shabbat, they would consider to be Muksa. But the fact is that you use them for Hatmana, which is permissible on Shabbat, but you can't carry them, they're still Muksa. Ketzad, who Oseh, how do you then get the pot out of there? The pot is buried in this item that is Muksa. You can't move away the Muksa, because you can't carry the Muksa. So no telatekisui, but ain't no float. You do is you pick up the handle, you grab the top, and as you take it out, they fall away side to side. It's tiltul minatzad, it's tiltul muksa minatzad, which is permissible. It's a basket or whatever is in there, you tip it onto its side, but no tell. Take it out. Because our fear is that you'll take it out and then you won't be able to put it back in. You can take it out and put it back in. Fear is that if you pull the pot or whatever's in there out, then serve from it. And now you want to be matminid. You want to put it back into the insulation. If the insulation walls of the insulation collapse inward, meaning that the structure is given by the pot itself, so you pull it out and then the wool that's around that creates that tamana, then it falls into the middle. When you go to put it back, you can't move it because it's muksa. So you're not going to be able to recreate the atmana there. So he suggests, don't take it out totally, just tip it a little bit out of there on its side so the structure remains there and it holds it in place. Come and say, you can take it out and put it back. We're not fearful of you having to move muksa to put it back in place. 
Tomorrow we'll discuss all this. Yativ Rabbi Yonatan ben Achinai, Rabbi Yonatan ben Elazar. So they were seated together, these two individuals. Yativ Rabbi Chanina Barchama Gabayu. And Rabbi Chanina Barchama was seated with them. Now the Rabbi Yonatan points out in other places in Shas that whenever you have a formulation like this, it means that the third one is singled out. It could have said all three of them were sitting together. Why does it say two of them were sitting, and this person was also sitting with them? What's the relevance of that? Rabbeinu Tam says, whenever the Gemara does that, that means that person is going to be the highlight, the Chiddush of the Sugya. He's going to say something that makes a difference here. So, and he was sitting there, and he asked him a question. Shlachim shel balabayitnan, avel shuman. We're talking about the skins that are mentioned here, that are used for the Atman, and that you're allowed to carry around. Or those are the ones of the balabayit, meaning that household skins, aval shaluman, if they are the skins of a tanner, cave into kapitalayum no Since people are makpid on them, meaning that he has to sell them, and when he wants to sell them, he doesn't want them getting dirty or ruined, so therefore he's not going to allow you to do atmana with them. Basically, muksam ahmad chisaron kis. It's something that you would not allow to happen. Odilmo shalumantanan, or maybe our mission says, even that of a tanner that you're allowed to use, the koshkin shall balabait, and even the balabaits. Makes sense that the Balabayit is what we're talking about, but Shaluman Kapitalayu. Makes sense. That of the Balabayit, they are Makpid on. If you're Makpid on it, then it's Muksa because of Muksa Machmat Chisaron Kis. He won't allow you to use it for anything besides its primary purpose, which is to sell it to someone else. Then, Amarlo, Rabbi Chanina Barchama, as we expect, Rabbi Chanina Barchama comes back and says something, gives the alternative answer, which is, Gachamai Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi. This is what Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi says, Abba, Abba meaning my father Rabbi Yossi, Shalchahava, he was a tanner, Ve'amar, Heviu Shlachim, bring the skins from the store, Ve'nei Shevalei, and let us sit on them. So you see here that even though he was a professional tanner, he still allowed them to sit on the skins, and therefore, it would be equally true in our Mishnah that they would not be classified as muksa on Shabbat, because we see here that even a professional allowed people to sit on them. Rashi claims that the incident took place on Chol, on a weekday. He said, on a weekday, come bring the skins to sit on them. Not that it took place on Shabbat. Tosafot disagrees. It says that the incident took place on Shabbat. And therefore, Tosafot says, Halokha ki Yossi. The Halokha is like Rav Yossi over here, the Kaimelan Maserav. First of all, we have Halokha Lamaiset. They acted on it. According to Rashi, just, that was an indication that the Uman, the craftsman, is willing to allow his skins to come in. But it's no evidence about the din on Shabbat. It was just evidence of the fact that it's not muksam ahmad chisarun kis. The way Tosfot formulates it says it happened on Shabbat, then it's also evidence to the halacha that one is allowed to use them on Shabbat. And v'chei nira, he says that's the halacha. And v'chei the halacha is this way. Meitave, nisarim shel balabait, mitautulinotan, v'shuluman, so when it comes to the boards of the balabayit, you can carry them around. That of the craftsmen, you may not carry them around. If he already had in mind to use them or utilize them for serving bread to the guests on, then they can all be carried. So when it says, shiny nisarim de kapid alayhu. Nisarim are different because they are makpid on them so that they don't get ruined. The Gemara's question, or the question being posed over here is, we just said by the skins, that whether they're professionally tanned, or whether they're the homemade type, that they are not muksid because people they allow the people to use them or utilize them on Shabbat. Now, by boards, we're saying there is such a distinction, that if they're homemade boards, then you can use them on Shabbat because they're not muksid. 
But the boards of the professional, you may not use them on Shabbat. Why by boards do we have such a distinction? And by the skins, we do not have such a distinction. Why is the professional by the boards not, is considered to be muksa? But the professional by the skins is not considered to be muksa. The Gemara answers, Mishom de shiny nisarim, tikapid alayu. There, there, makpid on them. So Tashma, the Gemara says, orot, ben abudim, ben shein abudim. Skins that are tanned, they're already worked over, or skins that were not tanned yet, they're still in their original state. Mutar the tautalan bishabbat. You're allowed to carry them around on Shabbat, they're not classified to be muksa. The only issue between whether they're tanned or not tanned is what refers to Tumah. The Avudin is considered to be the Gemar Malacha, considered the end of the process that makes them usable or gives them utility. And therefore they're a clean now that's Mikabel Tumah because they've reached the point where they've reached the end game. They've been worked over. So my love, so if I looked at this Brighta, wouldn't you say, Loshna Shobalabayit, Loshna Shaluman? It would make no difference whether it was that of the Balabayit or that of the Uman. It makes no difference, I meaning in terms of the Tautalan Bishabbat, it would be Mutar, either way. And that would be a proof to what we just said before. So Mar says, well, Shabalabayit. No, the bright here is only addressing that of the Balabayit, of Shaluman, my. But if it came to the craftsman's skin, ain't Mitautalin, you wouldn't be allowed to carry them. Mar says, Yehochi, if that's the case, Hadatani Velo Amru Abudim Elonyan Tumah. That if they were tanned, that's only an issue with regards to Tumah, Bilvad, Liflog, Vilitne, Bidida. Could have drawn a finer distinction in the Brighta. But Medvarim, Mamurim, Bishal, Balabayit. When is it true? That's only true by the skins of the Balabayit. Havoshuman, lol. But by an Uman, that would not be the case. If you really believe there's a distinction between Balabayit and Uman, the Brighta should have drawn that distinction, which is a finer distinction. Even within Shabbat, you could have drawn the distinction. You don't have to go to Tumah to say that there's a distinction between tanned and not tanned. And Bar says, no, lo kula b'balabayit kamayri. That Brighta is only talking about balabayit. It doesn't get into Uman at all. So that's why it doesn't draw the distinction between balabayit and Uman. In Ochanami, there is a difference. But that Brighta is only addressing the skins of balabatim. And the whole Mishnah, Brighta is only talking about balabatim, and therefore the distinction is not relevant over there. But in Ochanami, the distinction still exists. So that the Gemara is leaving is unresolved in terms of whether the skins of an Uman have a din of muksa or don't have a din of muksa. And the Gemara ends off, Kitanai. It happens to be a Machlokitanaim. Which is, Orochel Balabait Mittautalinotan. Beishuluman Ein Mittautalinotan. Tanakama says that distinction exists. The skins of the Balabait are not muksa. The skins of the craftsmen are muksa. And Rabbi Yosimer, Chadzeh Bechadzeh Mittautalinotan. Rabbi Yossi says that the Allah is that they are not muksa, similar to what we saw before. Rabbi Shmuel bin Rabbi Yossi is the one who brought the evidence about the skins. And that's what Tosavot said before. It happened on Shabbat, and therefore we have halacha the said like Rabbi Yossi. Which is Rabbi Shmuel bin Rabbi Yossi says, we practice like my father's position, which is the skins of the Uman are not classified to be muksa. Therefore they're both considered to be mutar to carry around on Shabbat. Irrespective of whether you use them for Atman or not. The reason being that they are mizgalayu. You can use them to sit on. You can use them as throws. You can use them to sit on. And therefore they have utility on Shabbat, which is not for Isur. And now the Gemara says, yatve He sat there and he posed an additional question to them. Ha ditnan avot melachot arim chaserachat me. This is something you would expect to see on the first daf of the Gemara Shabbat. Here it's buried in Memtet Amudbet. 
which is the fact that there are 39 melachot on Shabbat. What is the source for the 39 melachot on Shabbat? Amalo Rabbechanina Bar So again, Rabbechanina Bar is the one who was singled out as to be sitting separate. He is the one that answers here. Keneved Avudat HaMishkan. It's because of the Avodah that's done in the Mishkan. In the Torah, the Parshiot HaMishkan and Shabbat are juxtaposed. That juxtaposition comes to teach us that that which was done in the Mishkan is impermissible on Shabbat. So then, the Avodat HaMishkan here, we're going to say it's not really here, later on in the Mara, in the seventh parak in Kalal Gadol, there Rashi and Rabbein Ochanan argue about what it means, Avodat HaMishkan. Rashi says that it means the building of the Mishkan. Those melachot that were involved in the building of Mishkan, that which is what is impermissible on Shabbat. The Rebbein Ochananel over there mentions that even avodah in the Mishkan, not just the building of the Mishkan, but the avodah that continues in the Mishkan, that's also indications of what is considered to be asur on Shabbat. It's a fundamental machloket about what is the guidelines for the 39 melachot. Is it simply the building of the Mishkan, or is it also the active Avoda afterwards in the Mishkan that qualifies. Now, the only thing you know from here, by the way, is that the Malchot are classified based on what was done in the Mishkan. Still, as Tosafot points out, you have a problem in terms of the 39. It's not clear how you get 39 from here. You have to have a Misora about 39, because the Gemara is going to say many times that many Malchot are very similar to each other. And in being similar to each other, why did you count them separately? The only reason to count them separately is because you have a Misora that there are 39. Without that misora, it would be difficult to argue that there should be 39. And therefore, the only thing we know from here is that they are connected to Avodat Mishkan. The fact that a 39 has to be another piece of information here, whether it's misora or whatever the other reason is, he has to believe that there's a reason why the number 39 is important, because you wouldn't get that just from the juxtaposition of Mishkan to Shabbat. There's another reason. Keneged, melacha, melachto, umelechet, shibatorah, arbeim chaserachat. It says in the Torah, lo tasuk al melacha. You may not do melacha in the Torah. How many times does the word melacha appear in the Torah? It appears 39 times in the Torah, in some form, which is melacha, melachto, melechet. In that form, it appears in the Torah 39 times, and that's why there are 39 melachot on Shabbat. By your Yosef, Truth is that there are more than 39. By Yosef it says that he comes that day back to the house to do his work. Does that count as one of the 39? Just count. You'll know if it counts. If there are 39 beside it, it doesn't count. If there are 39 with it, then it does count. They didn't leave there until they brought a Sefer Torah Manaum, and they counted them. Amalek, he comes smakily, says, no, 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 I know that there are 40. I have a problem because I don't know which of the 39 are the 40. Mishum Dichtiv, there's another pasuk in Shemot, which says, that when they were bringing the donations to the Mishkan, says over there, that they had sufficient. Does that Malacha count over there? So now the Gemara says, does that count? The one who says that he went into the house of Potiphar, not of his work, but rather because he knew that the wife of Potiphar was there, and he was seduced by her, or attracted to her, and therefore he went into the house. Melacha is not literally melacha, but melacha is a euphemism there. Or maybe no. There's a machloket there between Rab and Shmuel, whether he really was... Intending to do work, or he was intending to get himself into trouble. 
So if you say he was going in there for an inappropriate reason, then that word melacha doesn't count, and the one in Shemot does count. On the other hand, that was really to do his work. That a melacha doesn't count, because there it says, the shalim le'avidta, that they finished the work. Not that they worked, or that it is melacha, it's a statement of completion. Teiku. We might leave it as unresolved that the 40 words of melacha, we're unsure as to which one of those two counts towards the 39 to make up the 39. There is a bright that supports the one who says that the juxtaposition is what drives it. The only chayav from melachot to the mishkan that were similarly found in the mishkan. Heim zaru, batem lo They planted, you may not plant. Heim patzru, they harvested, batem lo and you may not plant. Heim halu atakashimi karkala They moved the boards from the ground, which is reshut haravim, lagala to the reshut yachid, batem lo tachnisim reshut haravim, reshut yachid. They dismounted the boards from the wagons onto the ground, which is from Rashut Yachid to Shut Rabim, but Temlo Tutsio Mishut Yachid to Shut Rabim. This will come up later in the Mesechta. They passed the boards from one wagon to the other. You may not take it from one private domain to another private domain. What's wrong with taking something from one Yishut Yachid to another? This will come up later in the Masechta, that one may not pass an object. If you have two balconies on either side of the Shut Rabim, you cannot pass an object from one balcony to the other, because that's what was done in the Mishkan. It was passed from one wagon to the other, from one Rishut Yechid to the other, through Rishut Rabim, even though it's above ten Tepachim, and that is not permissible. So we see that the Mishkan is the paradigm for the, the Malachot of Shabbat, and that brightness supports that understanding. Tosvot in the end says that even according to the one who says Malacha and has the 39 times the word Malacha still requires this. He will agree that they have to learn from the Mishkan which Malachot are of the Malachot of the 39. He says in the end they might not be mutually exclusive, although he says it's hard to argue that because the Gemara seems to think they're arguing. And that there's a Machok and they bring a Breit to support one position. If they're not arguing, the Breit supports both positions. So even though he says that uh, it's tempting to say that they both agree, nevertheless it seems from the Gemara that they are arguing. Okay, we'll stop here.